We can't all be like Greg Hugh. I'm sure Greg has every single one of these <laughs> memorized protocols. by heart as, as, as he went through all 50 protocols and has now surely, surely gone through all the types. People have glow-in-the-dark stars on their ceiling. Greg has glow-in-the-dark protocols, right? I will not <laughs> confirm or deny that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So hey everybody, welcome to episode 135 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Dimitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario and I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we also have a special treat, Greg here from San Francisco. Hello there. California. <laughs> the Golden All right. State, actually. Yep. The Golden State. Well, there you go. California. Yep. Wait, are you going by Gregory now? Like, oh, I just put it in. Be, for, I wasn't sure if you were just being to be cute. Funny. Gregory. Yeah, I'm just Gre- being funny. And Gregory has a secret pick. All right. Gregory Sebastian Heo. <laughs> Sebastian. <laughs> Sebastian. Esquire. Archibald Esquire. or Reginald, <laughs> some sort of. Esquire, yes. Yeah, yeah. Esquire, gotta, gotta fa- yeah. fancy it up a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Sebastian is pretty good. That is a nice, fancy sounding name. Yeah, I went to a private school and when I was. 12 and so you know we had it, like each kid each kid was referred to by their last name you never had a first name in the school unless with your friends right but um so and if you had a brother you'd be like major and minor right and i think there was one <laughs> one year there was four of them and so there was there was um major minor and minimus or something like that like like they used the whole <laughs> latin thing but all the parents were so-and-so esquire and I, I never could understand what esquire other than the fact that they were i guess the people who were paying the paying the bills or whatever right yeah i'm not sure what it was so i like that so I was throw, that means you look after throw, horses um is that have, what it means <laughs> must have, must have, well i think that's where the word comes from but uh you know ah, your squire you was the uh i don't know i'll, I'll oh, look up the etymology see. of that later but uh, there esquire. i was gonna say like that was that was the word i was looking for etymology. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the funny things at uh, at um, uh, Indie Devstock, Jaime, was that when Greg introduced his talk, it was it, had some, it always has something to do with language. But he sort of said the first slide said entomology and you etymology, not entomology. Entomology, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> I'm thinking Esquire is like a like equestrian kind of a thing, right? So I think it's horses. But anyway, hmm, maybe oh, the, the owner of the horses. I'll look it up. We'll put it in the show notes for those who are interested. <laughs> Or the stables, I guess, yeah. Um, hmm. Okay, so right off the bat, we have um, a couple of follow-up items. One is, and this has to do, I think we talked about this last fall, uh, about um, the Enterprise and how Apple's place role in the Enterprise is sort of eclipsed by, Win, by Microsoft World or IBM World, or Microsoft World more primarily. And that was my experience in where I work now. The majority of computers at our company are, are uh, IBMs, but Macs are growing in popularity. Clearly, we, because we write iOS, we use Macs. But this article here by Apple Holic on Computer World, Johnny Evans, uh, talks about how the Mac and iOS usage is climbing really fast in the enterprise. Uh, 74% of organizations saw an increase in Mac adoption, according to the subline here. So it's kind of good to see that Macs, and this is all da- data from Jamf. I've t- mentioned Jamf on the show before. They're, um, um, it's, it's no longer called mobile device managers. Enterprise device management, I think, is what they call them, EDM. Um, and they're a software that you can use to profile and, and you know do uh, enterprise-level management of Various equipments, Macs being one of them, and iOS devices being the other. 
they can control like you, if you bring your own device they can put you know company software on it when you leave the company they can take that software off that kind of stuff all remotely you know and if they're doing enterprise apps they can install them that way that's what jamf is being used for they can also set up your mail account like just by downloading a a, a profile but um sort of ha- kind of handy stuff but so but they because they've got that they've got their finger on the pulse in terms of what devices are in these in these uh, enterprise locations and Looks like a lot of uh, a lot of Macs are taking taking strong foothold. Sixty six percent said they were easier to maintain, and in fact, IBM claims that they've now got way more Macs in their their locations. Um, IBM has a lot of relationships with uh, various um, enterprises, right? And they're saying that IBM claims that they're and we've talked about total cost of ownership of Mac versus PC before that. Um, they're saving $534 US, I would assume, on uh, having a Mac versus a PC in terms of supporting it and all that other kind of stuff, right? So the $543 was amazing because they say they're saving $54 million, which suggests they have, what, 100,000 Macs, if I'm doing the math correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that well, is they, an yeah. awful lot of computers and, yeah, some pretty big savings. Is there anything about um, iOS usage? Yeah, yeah, that's a, there was something in here. Um, oh, there's a there's a graphic there. It says seventy six percent increase in iPhone and iPad adoption, and it comes down to this: like you know, people are going into these work work workplaces, um, and they're 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 wondering why their their work computer is less powerful or less reliable or less virus proof than the device they have at home, which in most cases is, is Macs and and millennials picking mm-hmm. Macs and and iPhones, right? So damn millennials. I was also curious about, uh, they did mention phones and iPads, but I've, I mean, I still see a mix of iPhone and Android phone devices out there in the world. But when you look at tablets, yeah. it seems yeah. to be iPad has taken over the tablet market. You don't, at least me, I don't, I don't see very many Android tablets out in use day to day. They all seem to that's be true, yeah, that's iPads. True. So I wonder what, what happened with, there was always that, there was that thing about iPad sales slowing down and maybe like absolute number of ipad sales have gone down but i feel like the relative percentage in the tablet market ipad i think has always been very high but i feel like like it was like 80 percent before now it's like 90 percent of the time i'm just making up these numbers but is that sort of addressed in here or do they just kind of lump together ipad and iphone together well, they do have them in the, in the stats here. And, and one thing we talked about about iPad before is it seems to me that people keep iPads longer than they do their phones. Like, you mm. know, it seems like every year or every two years, people are flipping their phones. But, That's true, yeah. You know, generally speaking, they tend to keep their iPads. I mean, I sold my iPad 1 to the to a friend of mine, and she's still using it, right? And she mm-hmm. every six months, she says, I should get upgrade from this thing, but she never does, right? So so the fact that she's still using a device that... What, what, what year they came out? 2010? Seven years later, she's still able to use an iPad 1, so... Hmm. I did hear yeah. they're going to be refreshed next week, says the rumor, but I guess we'll see if it happens. But I am uh, due for an uh, iPad upgrade. I think Hymas has said that in the past before, too, right? That uh, you're going to be upgrading that yeah. to a new iPad? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, whatever comes out, I, I just need, like, new device. I'm, I'm sure there'll be some sort of, you know killer feature there but even if there isn't uh you know if it's got better battery life or the screen is nicer at the very least i would just like to have thinner of course that's what you want yeah i mean i i use it mostly at home so that's not that big a deal but um if they didn't come out with something and they said oh there's no more ipads you know no new ipads we're just going to keep manufacturing this one for the next you know seven years like uh tim's friend right like oh nobody wants a newer one we're just going to keep making these right Mm. um I think I would get the 
Pro, because I'm looking to add Apple Pencil to my repertoire of things that I yeah, me too, I use me the too. iPad for. So, so really I'm hoping from the mini. I really, standard. you have a mini as well, right, Hamid? That's what you use an iPad. No, I currently use a 9.7 uh, Air 2. Ah, I see. Okay, okay. I really mm-hmm. like the mini, but yeah, I'm. I've looked at the iPad Pro 9.7, and it's like this is a reasonable size, and yes, the pencil. So. If they came out with the mini with pencil support, I might I might stick with it, but otherwise I think I'm going to upgrade to the next one up. Well, the rumor is there is going to be a 7.9 inch, otherwise known as mini um, iPad Pro, iPad okay. Pro Mini. Okay. And then that's what that's we were yeah we mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. Okay. But um, that again that's just a rumor, right? So we'll put that right next. We'll put that one in the, in the right next to the uh, iPhone 8 discussion, right? So. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I look forward X. to some follow-up <laughs> next week to hear uh, hear what you guys bought, if anything. Yeah, well, you know, Carol and I both uh, I have we both have pros now. She has she got we upgraded her to a nine point seven a little while ago, so we have the uh, the I guess the true tone display. I really don't play with it very much, but she's she's happy with it. So, mm-hmm. and she keeps her iPads for years. Carol does. So this is getting so maybe a couple thoughts here th- that I have is that one. I think kind of to Greg's point is it seems like the tablet market isn't really growing much, if at all. Right. But right, I think yeah. it's quite spot on that it's essentially becoming an iPad market. All of these Android devices are sort of falling by the wayside. And to a lesser extent, the Kindle Fire from Amazon kind of competes in a slightly different space as being more of you know pure multimedia um, yeah. Sort of device yeah. and, and really they have heavily that kid version that's like has all that padding around it, right? Don't they still have that? Yeah, one? and then they've got the the ones they're like thirty five dollars for the cheapest right. ones. And you <laughs> right. buy them in a six pack, and they, wow. they're essentially <laughs> like you know disposable cotton balls at that point, right? Just keep you know keep one in every room. Oh, I lost one. Well, whatever. I'll buy another one when I go to the <laughs> you store. You get one of those of Amazon buttons to uh, to buy a new one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, dash button for your Kindle bars. Like, yeah, yeah, um, and I and I kind of think that the smartwatch sort of market is is sort of doing the same thing, where it's not really rapidly growing, but any growth that is happening yeah. is largely consolidating to the Apple Watch. The other thing I'm I'm kind of finding kind of curious here is like imagine that like you you fell into a coma, no, um, a, a more happy one. So imagine in 1997 you were frozen in carbonite. <laughs> and you you come out in 2017 and you say, by golly, what's going on with Apple? And we would say, oh, well, you know, professionals and creative folks are a little bit concerned about Apple not really doing that well for us. But uh, on the positive side, the enterprise is really, really happy about Apple. And then they're really saving a lot of money. And, what? Yeah. It, it, you know, <laughs> removing the sleep gunk out of your eyes, fresh out of carbonite. You know, from 1997 version, it would be like, what, what the heck are you talking about? How is this possible? Like, we, they were, <laughs> you know, diehard creatives were the ones that were the market. And the enterprise was rapidly moving heavily towards Windows at the time. And what's going on here? It, it, it feels Windows like Windows XP, really, man. Windows XP was ruling the world. Yeah, it feels like things have really kind of like flipped the script in, in some sort of respect here. So the, these enterprises are finding that, you know, they like the savings that they get out of using... Uh, you know, Apple devices, which is a little bit different than like the education market, which is like, well, we kind of need something cheap and disposable, like, you know, 
cotton balls because the, these kids destroy them. So, you know, $200, $300 Chromebooks are, are a better option for them. And, and Apple's suffering yeah. in that area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is that I've always maintained that the large, you know, um, five and a half inch phones, like my iPhone 6 Plus, and the, all the Androids I see around the office are all the, the big ones, the ones that have Androids, right? And they're mini, they're like micro pads, right? So, for all intents and purposes, like they're they're not that much smaller than an iPad mini, right? So... I think that may be where the sort of tablet market has kind of gone. If you, if you want a tablet, you get the best of both worlds. You get a phone, you get a thing you can play games on, and, it, and it's kind of ta- tablet-like, right? So maybe that's mm-hmm. where the – that's just hypo- hypothetical, right? But maybe that's where the uh, the tablet market has gone, especially on the Android side, right? Right, right. So anyway, that's uh, the Apple Enterprise success story, which is good to see. We should – came 10 years too late for me unfortunately <laughs> the second piece of uh, follow-up here with i think we talked about grace hopper before is it hopper hooper hopper 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 hopper, hopper thank you um there's a great little video here and and uh, um i think guys I, I think uh again i have to blame the guys on the slack for for pointing me in this direction there's also a there's a video of her doing a talk at a, at a computer class when she was in the Navy. And uh, there's also a, a video of her on talking around the same subject on David Letterman back in the early days. But what it, what she talks about here, she's, she tells the story of how she came up with how to have a, a physical representation of a nanosecond, which is a billionth of a second. And so she uh, called up somebody in her department and said, send me over something that represents a nanosecond. And they sent her over an 11-inch piece of wire and said, that is how how far electricity can travel in a billionth of a second. And so she, you know, she regularly uh, hands out, you know, 11-inch pieces of wire to give people uh, analogies. And she says, it was great for explaining to generals and admirals how this stuff works, because they would say, why does it take so long to send a message via satellite? And she would kind of hold one piece of wire up and go, because there's there's a lot of nanoseconds it takes to go to the satellite and back down again. And with a physical piece of wire, she could represent that to them and make sense, right? And then she also asked, well, can you send me over a, um, a microsecond? And so they, they send her over 900 feet of wire, and, you know, in a <laughs> coil. And she says, in the story, she says, you should give this to every developer. So, and you should hang it on their desk or maybe around their neck. So when they waste nanos- or microseconds, you can show them how much they're wasting. Which is a sort of a great <laughs> analogy, right? Mm-hmm. So think about that when you're doing your startup time tests. Right. I, I loved this one, uh, this video, because it it did a really good job of explaining to folks who are, you know, non-technical, in this case, the uh, the generals that she was dealing with as, or admirals that she was dealing with that were like wondering, like, because from their perspective, right, like they're just using technology. It's, it's all magic, man. It's yeah, all magic. It's an yeah. instant means. And they're like, well, what can we do to, to make it faster? Why, why can't we make it faster? Like, can we throw money at it? Do you need money sort of thing? Do you need time? Like, what is it? Like, I have this goal in mind and I want instantaneous communication. And she did a really good job, good job of explaining. It was like, this is why, look, you can see physically here and imagine in your mind a, a line between us and the satellite and they know how high the satellite is, right? They're, they're really good at that. They can sure, wrap yeah, their heads yeah. around. Oh yeah. I guess, I guess there are a lot of those between here and there. And, and if that's as good as it can get, then that's as good as it can get. So I thought yeah. that was great. Right. Cause like it, it's pretty common in our industry to like sort of forget 
that not everybody's as uh, you know really into the whole technical game as we are. Like not everybody necessarily uh, has the background or even necessarily the just the interest in in understanding like what is it that's going on in your your computer world. Like well, this is how this translates into your your business value. I loved it. Yeah, and it's also good. Like if you're if you're logging onto a server, well, if the server is in Chicago or Dallas, you know, why does it take so long for me to log in? Well, because it's got to go that distance across the internet, notwithstanding the various speeds from here to there to to log you in, kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. if you if you're running a routine or a process or whatever, and you've got some sort of bad code, and and, uh, and you can use instruments to measure time, and uh, you can write a test to see how how performant your time your uh, your functions are, your methods are. You can see how much time it's taking, and you can des- you can decide whether it is you know can you can you save time, and rather than just saying ah it's a microsecond, who cares, right? Mm. Well, nine hundred feet is a long time in 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 microseconds, right, or long distance, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if Doctor Rubin were with us, he would also point out sort of the opposite. All the flaws from what we just said. No, no, no. <laughs> he would point out the the inverse of this, maybe, and think when you have a, when you have chip design, and then you say Intel shrunk the process; they went from you know. 20 nanometers to 14 nanometers like what does that mean why is that better even if they didn't redesign anything and you can think the little electrons or whatever have a shorter distance to travel because you've shrunk the, the process down right and then that will effectively speed up the right, right. speed up execution as well so it kind of goes the other way around when you're thinking of how far does this like on, on a tiny scale how far does this electron have to go to signal this other transistor and it's like oh well we shrunk the entire chip down and so that just runs naturally runs faster up to a certain point of course and then you can ask him next time about uh leakage and things like that but um that's what i True, thought of yeah, when i heard yeah. about this of nanoseconds and turning time into distance but then i think um maybe more regularly we think of the other way around and thinking about chip and process size and things like that and how that turns into seconds and saving us time right Right. And for those of you yelling at your phones right now, we know we're talking about uh, wire and how far it takes to travel, but it's actually the speed of the speed of light <laughs> travels that fast. So, cause that's, that's, as we know right now, that's the maximum speed we can go, right? Almost. Cause it's going but, through uh, wire and, you know, mm-hmm. wires made of copper. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know, if and we were in a vacuum at absolute zero, then, then it would be different in, uh, in Mark's yeah, lab, I mean, right? And, and, mm-hmm. Physics. No physics yeah, talk allowed. Let's stop. Let's move on <laughs> before more people yeah, get angry. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're, we're speaking out of our element. Um, another piece I put on here is not a follow-up oh, nice on the pun road. There. I like that. Huh? Well, you know, you said speaking out of our element, you know, but I guess oh, it's a chemistry sorry. joke, but you know, I thought you did that. On well, purpose. you guys were trading a whole bunch of, a uh, whole bunch of C plus plus jokes on the Slack the other day. And I had to think about some of them a couple of times, but yeah. I screenshot it. I'm I was sure very proud just... of some of those. Yeah. Yeah. I should screenshot that. That was pretty good. Yeah. Okay. That's true. Maybe I will. Um, <laughs> So the, the last, or sorry, my last follow-up piece, uh, yes, is uh, the folks over at Rollout.io um, sent um, an open letter to Apple, you know, talking about you know their their way of doing JavaScript injection, uh, you know, since the the story was that they were people who had uh, developers who had used their pro- their product to do live updates to their apps uh, after they've gone through the approval process or the Apple approval process. Um, they were you know people who were using rollout rollout and uh, rollout also through Microsoft was it Code Push 
that we talked about last week, Jaime? Yes. In his open letter, they also, they also dragged them under the bus with them, right? Because they mentioned them in the, in the letter to Apple. I guess maybe Apple hadn't been looking at them closely enough. But um, so they've written this open letter to Apple, which I don't know if you read it, but I, I, I don't see how writing an open letter to uh, Apple in this, this way, what are they going to publicly shame Apple, the richest company in the world? I mean, I think it was more like, you know, you're drowning as a business and you desperately need something to stay afloat. So you, oh, yeah. you grab whatever you can. And it's, you know, I read through it and it's, it, it's not an unreasonable request. Uh, maybe there's some technical challenges that I'm not really thinking of, but it's, it's pretty reasonably written out here as to what would happen, you know, specifically, you know, without human intervention. So it, it doesn't incur, you know, more cost to Apple's review system in, in any way. And, and using this signature system is a little bit, you know, kind of like the way that the, the whole gatekeeper system works for the Mac, right? right Where yeah. you have your developer certificate and um, it doesn't prevent things from, you know, bad things from happening, but it reduces the, you know, the potential downsides because Apple can say, oh, well, hold on. Like, we're going to yank this developer certificate and therefore the Macs will refuse to run this sort of code. So, yes, it will get out there, but not for very long once they figure it out. Um, so they can shut the door and that sort of stuff. I see where rollout is going with this, where wanting to have some sort of, you know, faster, iterable way to get, you know, better code into your users' hands is, is sort of what they want to do and what their whole business was about. And I think there's a strong desire in the Apple community to do that, to make it closer to being like running your own website or your own web service where, uh, there, you know, there's nothing more than just a git commit away from, from having new code, right. And user refreshes a browser or a VM restart somewhere, but it's not, uh, it's not hours and it's certainly not days. And even though Apple's done a really good job of reducing that cycle time from, you know, a week to two weeks down to a couple days, uh, less than a day in some cases, if things are really good. It's still really hard if you have, you know, a terrible bug out there and people are, um, you know, installing the app and it's just getting worse and worse and you can't do anything for uh, at least a few hours while you get through an emergency review. Yeah, but by the same token, you can also reject your own binary at that point, right? But I think you made a good point last week that that if that's the kind of experience you want to, your users to have, then build a web app. That's what you said, I think, right? To that effect? Yeah, this, that's the practical sort of side of it, right? That, like, you, you have certain aspects that you're dealing with when you have an installed app. And we should more or less consider iOS as um, kind of an embedded platform because that's that's what it is, right? You, you're essentially running embedded software on a device. It's not like running, you know some sort of web page or web service that people just go to their browser and, Oh, something's wrong, whatever. I'll just hit refresh. And now I have the newest coat sort of thing. It's not quite like that, even though uh, I know many would like to have it be closer to that. And therefore that's why this company uh, got started to begin with, right. To offer that uh, as a service to developers. Right. Right. I, I'll, I'll say that I don't think this really has much chance of Apple paying much attention to it. And even if we say, well, what might Apple do to sort of help alleviate this problem? I don't think they would go down the route of having some mechanism for JavaScript, which is not necessarily a language they're 
really jumping whole hog onto. Um, right. I think if right. anything, they'd find some sort of way to have this addressable through the app store in either, you know, more automation on the review process so they can get things, you know, down to hours instead of even you know, a day or two, or they might have some sort of solution that is, um, based more on their ecosystem. I'm thinking more swift. I'm thinking more cloud kit. You know, if, if you imagine cloud kit had more, uh, server side functions sort of stuff that you could run, uh, like we've talked about Amazon's, um, AWS Lambda. We talked about, um, what is it? Open whisk from IBM's blue mix service, like that sort of thing where your app is kind of difficult to get incorrect. It's like, you couldn't possibly have something catastrophic in your app because it's largely a, a like a dumb terminal of very much a small shell where most of the business logic is performed by uh, some sort of backend web service sort of thing. I could see that sort of thing being done by Apple. I, I really can't see them going down the route of yeah. like, Hey, I want to be able to send hot patches of code down to, to these devices. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, what you're saying though, is, is like, you know, sort of a desperate attempt is, is, or sort of a conniving attempt or whatever you want to call it. I don't want to put any like sort of spin on this company rollout, but, um, I saw a picture today of, of a parent had tweeted and I'll see if I can find it, share it with you guys. But the, the, the thing was this little kid, he's about eight years old, was told he can't take food into the living room and he can't have his iPad in the kitchen. Right, so there's a picture of him lying on the edge of the kitchen, where you can see the carpet from the living room and the and the tile from the kitchen. He's got his juice and his sandwich on the tile, and he's got his iPad on the carpet, and he's lying on his stomach looking at the iPad. Right, right, yeah. I saw, you know, so I, I saw that one. Yeah, so he's got the best of both worlds going for him, right? Because he's he's not breaking the rules, right? And he's kind of he's kind of this is kind of sort of where it is with in this this kind of situation. I think that um, if Apple is going to approve something like this kind of situation where you could do live updates, I think Apple will come up with that solution, and they and it'll be an Apple sanctioned thing, like it'll be a you know some sort of as you said maybe an iCloud service or something like that 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 they would be able to keep an eye on, right? As much as they keep an eye on things as it is, right? So. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they've never really been like, they'll never go out and out of their way and say, oh yeah, AF networking is awesome. Everybody should do the AF networking. And they'll say, no, no, NSURL session, use that. Right. Uh, and they'll, they'll never, you know, that's just not the way they are. They would never, um, support a third party thing unless it was something that they had, you know, blessed thoroughly. Right. So like, yeah. Like the whole Jamf thing, I mean, like the whole mobile device management, there is a way of updating content in your app using uh, like a certificate push, right? There, Jamf has an ability to do that. I, mean, I think I mentioned it when I talked about the enterprise stuff that I saw last last uh, last spring, I think, actually, um, for a present, presentation by Jamf at, at Apple, right? And um, so, I mean, there there are methods for doing this kind of stuff, but I think the difference is that that this rollout thing, as I understand it, is actually able to push code up to your device. And I guess where the name code push comes from from Microsoft as well, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, getting some of these are are kind of like if you've ever used Heroku, where you can literally just like commit to a GitHub project, and it will automatically build and deploy. Probably run tests as well, uh, but at least build and deploy right. updates to right. your service. That's, that's sort of what you know folks want to have, right? I, it, again, I think it's it's an interesting idea, but it it seems like it's solving for the developers' sort of problem rather than solving necessarily for the users' problem. Because I think looking at right. it from Apple's side, I think it would say, well, you should QA your stuff better. 
why why are you putting it in the review process and then just hoping that it goes well mm-hmm. right and and we've done so much to try to get it so that you can you can run tests locally you can run tests on device you can you know, you can get it through the process in see 714 so in like you know one tenth the time that it used to take um what's what's the big deal as i think i think that's a fair sort of uh, approach to take to it i found that tweet by the way it was actually you retweeted it <laughs> or you commented on it i did i did so it was in your feed that i saw it it's a great picture though smart kid oh. he'll go far or she i can't remember <laughs> who well what yeah, the kid was yeah. but yeah good picture mm-hmm so, Greg, you have a follow-up item for us? The world-famous, uh, Tim, Tim said Tyobe. I usually say Tyobe. I don't know how you say it. But these are the fine folks who have a code quality business or something like that. But they are, I think, most right, famous yeah. for coming out with the ranking of programming languages and which ones are up and which ones are down. And they released their March, um, whatever you want to call it, March report. And Swift has cracked the top 10. It's now number 10, up four places from Ooh. number 14 last month. Yeah, pretty exciting. So... Swift, um, Object Pascal is still around. Amazing to me. VisualBasic.net are up. And then, unfortunately, Perl, Ruby, assembly language are down. Oh. And Visual Basic is, or sorry, Objective-C is down one spot as well. So not only has Swift cracked crack the top 10, but Swift is above Objective-C, which it, I think, let's see, last month it was one above Objective-C, and now it's right. sort of six above. So, um, yeah, that's kind of... Good news for the Swift nerds. There was a little bit of commentary along with the report, and they said something like, uh, Swift is great, more people are moving over, but, and I'll quote here, since Swift is mainly intended to write applications in Apple's ecosystem, it is expected that it won't rise much further. So Hmm. a little bit of passive voice there, which I don't like, but they're saying, (laughs) hey, maybe it's peaked is kind of the way I'm reading that. But I don't know, I'm a little more bullish on Swift, and I would say... As it moves to the server, if it does make the jump to the server and other exactly, uses, yep. I think it could. I think it could hit a much higher place. I would say, I mean, if it doesn't overtake Object Pascal, then something is wrong with the world. Overtaking JavaScript might be a little bit tough. PHP maybe, Visual Basic .NET maybe. If I were totally, you know, completely bullish on Swift, I would say it could hit, let's say, number four. I think Java, C, C plus plus, mm. those would be tough to dislodge. But C sharp is number four, and Python is number five, and I feel like. C-sharp is like a Microsoft-y language. It's not 100% Microsoft. I know there's like Mono and things like that around it, but I feel like Swift could have that same kind of role as like Apple as the big push behind the language, but then it runs on Linux and people make different versions of Foundation and just like GNU stuff was there and things like that. So I do feel like Swift could be on the C-sharp kind of level. So I would say, I don't know, go down, let's say two, three years down the road, I could see it hitting... Number four, if I wanted to be very optimistic, I could definitely see yeah, that yeah. being on par but with the C-sharp. Didn't we see, uh, uh, isn't there a, a build of Swift for Android now as well? I believe there is, yeah, Swift support for, for Android. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I don't I've, think that's ever going to be official. I heard some rumor that Google was thinking about it, of moving things to Swift, but probably on the Java world, they're going to go with um, some of that Kotlin instead. I don't know. But um, yeah, I would, I mean, these guys are experts here, or these folks here at Tyobi are experts on that, and if they see it flattening out at number 10-ish, then that's very reasonable. But again, I would be a little more um, optimistic about Swift and put it longer term at, yeah, on par with C-sharp is where I would place it. But uh, what do you guys think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely think it's a growing language and and becoming more popular, you know, all the time. And and I think definitely the 
services from people like Perfectly Soft and IBM getting behind it with their Bluemix and uh, Katura. Is it Katura Swift, right? Mm-hmm. Katura, that's correct. Yeah. Um, those kind of products are gonna are gonna like give it give it more more breathing room in terms of uh, getting it out there. So I mean, the guy who said that it's, it's primarily for, I suppose, from a percentage point of view, it's primarily for for Apple devices. But uh, I think it's it's going to spread out, and because um, I mean, I think people who know Swift are going to be more comfortable writing server code in Swift. That's you know, if, if you follow my logic there, because. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm a I think like you, Greg. I'm a, I'm a, I wear many hats and write in many languages all the time. So I, I don't use Swift on the servers. But you know, as I get more comfortable with Swift, if it becomes an option for me, I certainly would would do it. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that as as people get more comfortable with it, they can do much more crazier things. And and right now, you know, maybe they want to break out of just the Apple iOS, you know, Mac OS world and and try doing some server code. Right. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can write the front end and the back end. That's the dream. I think for me, I'd be a little surprised if 10 was the highest that Swift ever went, because when I look at the list for one through nine, something that strikes me is that there's a lot of stability in these areas. Java, C, C++, C Sharp hardly ever changes, even though it actually has changed quite a bit since it, you know, initially came out. Python, sort of the same thing. It was a big deal when people started talking about doing Python three, uh, as opposed to Python two, and it's still not over yet. Like it's still not a hundred percent clear if that migration is going to happen for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is years after the fact, visual basic.net PHP JavaScript, um, doesn't move quite as fast because of just, you know, browser compatibility if nothing else. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing that's hurting Swift right now beyond just, you know, age and that it's a very new language compared to every, everything else on here is, uh, yeah, everything else on here is more than a decade old. Um, I think is, is the, just the stability, right? Like you, you can't, you know, get huge adoption unless you get rid of the pain of, Hey, guess what? Every year, just completely rewrite your Swift stuff or, or be completely (laughs) broken for like (laughs) a week to a day, you know, like that, that no, a lot of businesses would be like, no, I I can't, I can't invest in that. And and kudos to the companies that can, because like you're on the bleeding edge, but you're, you're also bleeding, right? (laughs) You're bleeding on the bleeding edge and you're, you're taking your lumps in in addition to the, the great advantages. So I'd be shocked if I didn't see it go up to, you know, maybe five, like, like Greg said, like, uh, Delphi object Pascal, I'm a little surprised. Probably embedded systems, I would guess, for that one. Yeah. Um, PHP is kind of surprising. Um, like well, that's ubiquity, of, though, right? Yeah, but like outside of Facebook, who's who's really keeping that one alive? That one surprised me <laughs> a little. WordPress, bit. WordPress, right? Me uh, single handedly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. WordPress and yeah. and Visual Basic .NET is like for heaven's sakes, just just use C Sharp. You're on the .NET platform. It's a much yeah, that, nicer, that, that better language. That was surprising language. to me too. Yeah. yeah. Just go with that. Yeah. If you scroll, I mean, if you look at the number, they also say what the percentage change was in Java and C are showing a negative four, negative six drop. They're still number one and two, so they, they're still far in the lead. But if you scroll down a little bit on this page that we've linked to, and you look at the sort of overall trend going back to like 2002, you can see that over the last few months, maybe since the end of 2015, Java and C Sharp are on like a very sharp downward trend. Again, they're still in the lead. But it almost reminds me of like the IE and Firefox market share charts where Firefox mm-hmm. had a good lead and then IE just sort of chipped away at it, chipped away and Firefox just had this complete drop. And then we got fragmentation where Chrome came up and Safari came up. 
and then you know the little players are down there, and then we kind of reach a steady state again. And I feel like looking at this chart, it just makes it very obvious that Java and C are on the decline, but still ahead. But what does that mean? Does that mean there's going to be a new third place that's going to shoot up and take whatever twenty twenty five percent share as Java and C do, or are we going into an era of like fragmentation where ten languages will each have you know seven percent? share in this index and then nobody we won't have a clear winner anymore so it'll be really interesting to watch this is the kind of thing where i'm glad that they're measuring it every month and then you have to look at sort of you have to look at the long-term trend and see what direction are are things going in so i'll be keeping an eye on this because it's very interesting how Mm -hmm. the little play like where has that four plus six where has that ten percent a lot of enterprise computers man Yeah, but it's not like one language has taken that 10%. It's been distributed across many of them. So, sure, yeah. again, what's this chart going to look like in the future? I'm be interesting, interested to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can tell you in our workplace, Java's still pretty heavy, right? So, in a lot of ways, like Node.js, I think. Is, is Node.js is a flavor That's of Java? That's JavaScript. 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 Oh, is yeah, it? Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, just the numbers here. Java, 16%. C in next place is 7%. So, it's more than more than double the next one so yeah java is definitely the uh the big player here and c is sort of a language that you would use on on equipment right like on sensors and, and i know arduinos is c and all that kind of stuff but is that kind of where c would be used for these days i think it's like op- i mean i think operating systems are a lot of it is still in c there's some c plus oh, plus in right, there like right, on windows right. i believe but uh like the whole linux kernel for example um is c i think it's all c and then uh, you work your way up from there. But I don't know who else is writing C for like applications these days. I would think not so much, but I'd, uh, that's not really my world either. So I don't know. Cross-platform stuff, a lot of wrappers. You know, you write a markdown parser in C and then you have bindings for every other language. So that kind of thing is still pretty popular, sure, but yeah. it's still a pretty big share. But C has mm. been around and has been popular for a long time. So I think it's just got momentum behind it too. But yeah, it, it is on the sharpest, like the... Um, the rate of change for Java and the rate of change for C, C is on a much uh, steeper drop. But we'll see. You got to track it over time, right? Yeah, this is a little graph here at the bottom. It's just, it's sort of that sort of 20% climb, right? Mm. The little blue line there at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Starting, and only starting in 2014, too, that since they've been, they've been measuring this stuff since 2002 or even earlier, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. 2001, you've got numbers here. Yep. Mm. The dawn of time. <laughs> for the mil- millennials, that is. Pretty sure 1970 and <laughs> January 1st is when the world began. Yeah, as far as that's I know, true. But that's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I was doing for the 10 years before that, but I was like wandering yeah, nothing, around in, a, in nothing. a fog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. All right. So here we are. We're at the main part of the show. And <laughs> the main like part of the hot- show begins now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for keeping us on target there, Greg. Um, so Jaime, why don't you tell us what you got here about uh, Git? Yeah, so this is a blog post. Um, it's a little bit older, but uh, as with a lot of Git stuff, it sort of never really goes out of fashion. Um, this is from Atlassian, uh, makers of Jira, as uh, as you may know, or recent owners of Trello, if you're keeping up with that news. And Bitbucket. That's true. That's their own product. That's right. Um, they've got a blog post on um, Git's um, force-pushing um, functionality and a, a sort of a nicer way to, to deal with it. So it's sort of important to understand with, with Git as a, um, you know, distributed version control system and that it's, it bases everything essentially on, you know, the, uh, hashes 
of, of commits, right? Is it, and I'm probably getting this terribly wrong. Like, I'm sure if he's listening, you know, Linus Torvalds is probably, like, shaking his fist already. It's how I've, uh, <laughs> I've butchered this. <laughs> um, but if you think of it as, like, this this timeline of, of, of commits, right, commit hashes, and it looks to see, like, oh, what's the history for this thing? Well, let me see how these commits line up. And uh, if you've ever done rebase, um, that's a function that lets you essentially rewrite history. Uh, and they don't really show it visually here in this blog post. But if you imagine that, um, you know, you and I, Tim, are are sharing a, a code repository and, you know, I've made my branch off a of develop that's like, oh, I'm going to make this cool feature. You might have done your own cool feature on your own branch. You might have merged that into back into develop. Well, rather than having a, sort of a nasty merge commit of, of pulling those changes in to get my stuff up to, you know, the same point in history, it, I can rewrite history with rebase and say, ah, well, th- there's nothing really too crazy here. I'm just going to pretend that I started this feature when Tim's feature was already in develop even though that's not actually true, right? And it's all based on that commit hash system. Um, When you use rebase, one thing that people tend to run into is if you're not careful, you can completely hose stuff for everybody else who's using that same, um, you know, branch that you're using, in this case, develop, right? Where if I wasn't careful, I could say, oh, you know, Git push and Git will tell me, oh, no, sorry, bro, you you can't. Like, you did a rebase and your commit hashes don't match up. Something Something's not right here. You can do the dash dash force uh, force option on Git push and say, forget it. Like, I know what I'm dealing with here. Just, just accept it. Um, that's great for me, but not so great for you because now your commit hashes history doesn't look correct at all. And Git will now tell you, like, oh, uh, no, that this isn't correct. The whole point of this blog post is to say, like, you know, using force is really, really bad. Uh, and you should be very careful on, you know, any time that you actually do that. You should be very clear on, on what you're doing. Instead, it's nicer to use um, the dash dash force with lease, which will check to see, like, are you even up to date on your local history before it allows you to force push, right? So it kind of gives you a, a little bit of a, a safety net where you know if i tried rebasing and force pushing with lease in this example git would have said no 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 hold on like there's a commit here from tim that's that's newer than your your history so you're not up to date we're not going to allow this through and i can say oh okay well that's good to know i'm going to rebase on develop and force with lease and this time is not going to complain and everybody's great and you can just pull down and do the same as well for your side and they go through uh, pretty good examples here uh, even kind of going off into the weeds a little bit as to how this system is imperfect. There are ways you can sort of trick Git into believing that there hasn't been any change. But I would say for for most folks, unless you're doing something exotic, you're probably not going to run into that sort of situation if you're using like a normal dev, just you know, getting the latest, rebasing on latest, uh, creating branches, getting branches back uh, merged into you know whatever integration branch you have. I think it's a good read because it's it's a tool that we have to use every day. Yeah, and it's like uh, they say in the Swift Apprentice book, which I think Greg and I had a hand in authoring, if you will. Um, whenever you use force, you should sort of stop and say, hmm, maybe I'm being a little too harsh here. So 
Is that what it says in the book, Greg? <laughs> uh, you, uh, you you can't put me on the spot and have me quote the book here, but I, I totally <laughs> no, no. believe you. Yeah, no, it has to do with, we were talking about force on rap in, in the Swift Apprentice, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. so it, I use that in, the, in my class when I talk about force on rapping, that it, obviously if you're using force, maybe you should be thinking twice about what you're doing, right? So mm-hmm. so force force with least seems to be a much uh, more uh, fair way to do that, right? What, what do that they was, mean by least? That was the part that was tripping me up. I think, I think the idea is that, well, what I got out of it when I read the article was that, you know, um, it preserves your changes that don't like if your changes come after mine in history or whatever um it'll it'll it will preserve your your stuff if i try to do a force with lease right it's just like many things in git it's probably named a little oddly um (laughs) that's a very diplomatic way to put it i like that yeah uh Regardless, of, like I wouldn't read too much into the like force with Lee's and exactly what that means. I can sort of do some mental gymnastics as to what this means, mm-hmm. but it, just think of it as you know force. The normal force is like you know tear down everything and salt the earth and rebuild because like you know just I know what I'm doing. I'm gonna just push this through, right? Just get it like a freight train. Like nothing is gonna stop this. And think of force with lease as being a like, well, I know what I'm doing, but I want to be careful. So just in case, just do one last check for me, please. And mm. if it comes back as like, no, this is, wasn't going to be successful. That gives you a hint of like, oh, maybe I'm not up to date. I should go yeah, check to see yeah. the history and I might need a rebase on top of uh, what is there. Mm, yeah, okay. it, says, it says here that force release does it, it, what it does is refuses to update the branch unless it's in a state that we can expect. So, and that nobody up, upstream has has updated something that we we're uh, we're going to clobber, right? So, it's like I guess it it doesn't accept the force commit, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I read that, right? Like I don't know how it works under the covers. If it's like it, it's essentially like a like an atomic operation that rolls back and is like, oh no, like that wasn't going to work. And it gives a little hint that, hey, like, there's stale information here, as opposed to the regular force, which just says, like, oh, okay, great, this is this is now the state of dev, and it says forced update. Yeah, so, and, and as Jaime likes to say about lawyers, we're not DevOps people, we just play them on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I uh, I definitely was not a huge fan of, of Rebase, um, because of the nasty things it can do um, for a long time. But I think over the last year or so, I've, I've sort of changed my tune as I've become more comfortable with using Rebase. And, and I'm still learning as it is. But um, in, our, in our model, we've got sort of like the, the main like mothership repository for our source code. And everybody on the team has their own fork of that source code. And so there's a little bit less danger of like doing something terribly wrong with Rebase because I'm not going to impact everybody else. Right. Um, and, and we do use like pull requests from our local fork back upstream to the mothership source repository as our means of making sure that everything sort of stays sane. Um, but I've had to share branches with uh, my colleagues just to make sure that they could, um, you know, get something uh, that they needed. Um, or in some cases we've collaborated on branches that were, know quite a bit of chunk of work and would have been difficult to have a whole bunch of sort of you know work in progress pull requests up to the master uh, mothership repository so 
uh, I think that's why I've become a little bit more comfortable with it in that the the damage that could possibly be done is you know much more localized to just my repository. At worst case, I can always like the absolute worst case, I could always refork from uh, the mothership and then redo my work if I needed to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think my bit of advice to people is make small commits and make them often as opposed to giant ones that are going to clobber the whole world. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely makes it easier. And if you, if you're going down this route of rebasing, you definitely need to do it often. Um, so don't go off for like two weeks, creating this feature in a, you know, in a, in a dark cavern, completely disconnected. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Like, you know, (laughs) you should be looking at least, once a day, uh, you should be getting the latest from your, your integration or develop or master branch or whatever your, your team happens to be using uh, to share code, if not several times a day. And, and that's actually what I do because it makes the merge conflicts uh, much easier to deal with. Whereas like, oh, okay, well, I, I, I see the, the small commit that came in and I see my small commits and I can see like, oh, okay, I, I can get this together. Or I might chat with somebody really quick and say, hey, like, can you take a look at this? I've uh, take a look at my branch. I, I tried reducing the conflicts here. I want to make sure that I didn't break any of your stuff. All right. Well, the next piece on our list here is uh, it's actually probably technically follow up, but because uh, we talked about the coming uh, end of 32 bit app support in iOS, uh, I think we talked about in iOS. 10, probably even iOS 9, that that Apple was starting to show alerts to users if your app hadn't been updated in a while to say this app is you know not 30 or not using 64-bit code or, but in layman's terms. And now they're they're saying that uh, the rumor is that um, with the introduction of iOS 11 in a couple of months, I guess June, right, when they'll announce it. Um, it may not it will not support the, the rumor says uh, any 32 bit app so around 200,000 apps will disappear from the store or not be able to function on people's devices right so um that doesn't sound like a huge number though aren't, aren't there like way more apps than that though like it's a very small percentage right am i not right out of the thinking? like 2 million ish apps that are on the app yeah, store um, yeah yeah i don't I mean, know how many are left given the the grand culling that they did where they started removing these old and abandoned Oh, apps. right. Yeah, right. yeah. That's well, the uh, little pie chart here says not updated is 8%. Right, right. right. And if there's 200,000 that it's suggesting haven't been updated, then that means there's going to be on the order of like 2 million apps, right? Well, there's, there's Greg and his math again. There's the math, yeah. I wish Tamri were here to verify it, but <laughs> that's, my, yeah. that's my quick math, at least, says that there's got to be like 2 point something million apps on the store if, this is, if that's what this is saying. It sounds about right because I do yeah. remember, yeah, I do remember a big, big number a while back. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Mr. Mr. Cook had rolled out a big number there. So mm-hmm. interesting. Also, in this article, there's a little video there of what 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 we can expect in iPhone eight, but we're not going to talk about it now. But if you if you follow the, for those of you driving home, sorry, for those of you driving at home in your cars. No, for those, uh, how do you say it? For those of you <laughs> driving along right. at home, or for those of you <laughs> okay. driving at home. Oh, for those of you driving at home, uh, there's a video there you can watch later on that uh, talks about some of the rumored features of iPhone 8 or iPhone X. We don't Ooh, know. X. You mean 10. Yeah. Um, one yeah, other true. number here <laughs> says that uh, when Apple was removing apps, I guess it was last year, that uh, according to this, it was 47,000 apps that were removed last year when they were doing their little cull of the App Store. 
So forty-seven thousand. Like forty-seven thousand. So that doesn't there, sound like a lot either. No. So if one hundred eighty-seven thousand are going down, that's you know that's not even really an order of magnitude difference. It's like double, three times as many, three times as many this time around. So they're taking an incremental approach, I guess, which kind of makes sense. But I guess in this case, if iOS eleven doesn't even have a thirty-two bit runtime or thirty-two bit support, then you're just kind of stuck at that point. Right, it's like, yeah, nope, yeah. those apps, they will not even run in. Like, not even a warning, nothing. They will just not run anymore. I'm thinking back to the PowerPC when they had Rosetta in there right, to yeah, run PowerPC yeah. apps. I think that lasted 10.4, 10.5. Maybe 10.6 was the last one, if I have Do that you know right. What they kept that, you know what kept that on the market? Hmm. Microsoft Office. Yeah, they did have to update that to whatever, Office 2011, I think, was the first one or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. Yep, um, yep. But yeah, that lasted, I think, three OS X releases, I want to say, which is about three-ish years. And yeah, iOS 9 started nagging people. iOS 10 had the scary warning. iOS 11 cutting support. I mean, maybe it's a little bit sooner, but you know, this isn't OS 10. This is a different beast, but the timing sounds about right to me. And plus, there are no supported, officially supported 32-bit devices anymore so it's it makes sense i think okay you can stop yelling at your phone because i think i was wrong about that. i think it was adobe that kept them with uh with somebody like, like photoshop that. probably yeah because as i think about this the reason I, one of the things i was happy about at the time was was that uh office for um mac os 10 was the one of the first products available on on os 10 even I think early like the first release. 10. Plus, 1, I, 10. I remember 1. during the demo when they were demoing Rosetta, and it was like this was an Intel PC all along on stage. Right, um, I remember oh, yeah, that's what it was. I that's remember was, yeah. I think they ran Office, and it was actually pretty good because Office is not that CPU intensive, I don't think, but Photoshop definitely is, and so that's right. Yeah, because because yeah. we started uh, OS 10 on on Power PCs. That's right. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, was that right? Yeah, yeah, Power PC. Yeah, my, my Wall Street was my first one. Yeah, exactly. Yep. yep. So hmm. I feel like Word may have been like, all right, we can we can live with this uh, for a while. But Photoshop, I think, was more of a non-star. Like, I think it ran acceptably well, but it was like, yeah, Adobe, please hurry up and move this over to uh, and get get that byte ordering sorted out and bring this over to Intel already. So, right, yeah. Well, yeah. there was a whole lot of lot of apps that still need. You had to run Classic for the longest time, right, to get things to work. Well, I, I've, I, I never did that. That's like, that's no way never? to live. No, uh, no. I got my first Mac in the OS X era, so I, I, I really? didn't have to do oh. it. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I started with System 6, just so you know. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Oh. Mo- moving on. Mm-hmm. I posted something here. It was a blog post from the the fine folks at LinkedIn, and they were talking about... It's, it's an interesting story about maybe premature optimization or something like that, where... They were compiling a lot of code. They've moved a lot of their code base over to Swift, maybe all of their code base, iOS code base to Swift. And they linked to a previous article about compiler performance and what the difference was between compiling an Objective-C project to a Swift project. And obviously Swift is slower, so they were having some notes on that. But now that they are all on Swift, what they found was that when they compiled their app on a MacBook Pro, it was faster than compiling it on a Mac Pro. That's the trash can. Uh, hmm. super core machines and so they ran some timings and if you look at the chart it's a very interesting thing there where the fastest is an iMac which is kind of makes sense that's kind of the desktop class ish machine that gets updated the most next up is the macbook pro and then it's the mac mini which is the next fastest at this point the mac mini is um 
let's see, there's numbers there, which I believe are seconds. Anyway, the iMac is 250 seconds. Lower is better. I think it's seconds. I don't know what the unit is. But lower is better. 250 for the iMac. Mac Mini is 500, so twice as slow. And the Mac Pro is the slowest at, I can't really tell what the number is, but I don't know, 600 or something like that. So it is the Say slowest. 575. It is the slowest out of all of them, which is amazing. And they did a little bit more analysis and found that there's some kind of contention. My guess when I read this was there must be some kind of IO contention because the Mac Pro, I think they have the top spec one, which is a 12 core. And then you have two virtual cores, whatever Intel does. So it's like 24 threads or something like that. And once you got past, um, I have to look at it again. Once you get past about five threads, I think was what they found then it starts to improve again. So there's something about having too many compilation threads, whether there's something wrong with the compiler or just having that many threads and there's too much I.O. contention and everything slows down. Um, I don't think they had a conclusion, but you can use one of those command line defaults write things and limit the number of uh, concurrent compilation jobs that Xcode will do. And when they brought that down to five, then the whole world was righted again and then uh, you would get an increase. But still not faster, because a two-core Mac Mini has four virtual threads, and that was actually still faster than the Mac Pro um, sort of scaled down to five cores, I think, is uh, is the idea here. Of course, there's always a trade-off. If you have like a one-core machine, it'll be like, I'm making up numbers here, three gigahertz, let's say. But if you have a 12-core machine, you have 12 cores, but the clock speed will be a lot lower. It'll be like, you know, 2.1 or something like that. So if you hobble the machine or you hobble your compilation and you say no only use five threads then you're really not taking advantage of all of those cores anymore because you have a lower clock speed so i think that's part of the reason why uh, they found these kind of numbers so something to be careful of if you have a large swift project and you're thinking let's go top of the line get those trash can mac pros then something to be careful of so they end the blog post here with a couple of tips one is the command line thing to reduce the number of uh, concurrent compilation tasks which is handy and then the other tip they have is to disable spotlight indexing for like your derived data and things like that. And they claim <laughs> uh, they claim a ten percent improvement uh, once you exclude certain directories from spotlight spotlight indexing because you know you're compiling and it's writing these files which are short lived and then spotlight is like oh I'm going to you know stupid MD worker will be like I'm, I should index these files and look into them and it's just going to cause even more IO contention I imagine so um, that's another tip so um. Yeah, I think the lesson I took was sort of software-related, not to do premature optimization. Always be sure to measure and to um, change one thing at a time. So, I don't know, you could try taking up more memory, you could install faster drives or something like that, or you can try reducing the number of cores and see what happens. And so, um, yeah, they filed a bug on the Swift open-source Swift bug tracker, the one that's powered by Jira. And there were some comments there, and I think they got a uh, they managed to uh, reproduce the problem over at Apple. So hopefully, well, whatever the problem is, will be fixed. So yeah, interesting to note for those of you driving at home that the MacBook Pro they tested on was a 2013 model. Ah, okay. I was going to say I was also interested that that, that we're talking about i7s and i5s versus the Xeon. I've often wondered the Xeon's an older older uh, chipset, isn't it? Uh, I think so. I mean, it's at least three years. I mean, the, that computer is three years old, so it's got to be a yeah. three-year-old. I think they still use the marketing name Xeon, but yeah. yeah. I was going to say, because my old Mac, my old X-Serves had Xeons in them, right? So, mm-hmm. And those are, like, really old. 
I am looking at the clock speed here, and yeah, the Mac Pro has a clock speed of 2.7 gigahertz, but the Mac Mini, which I don't know when that was last updated, dual core, late 2014, it has a 3 gigahertz clock speed. Mm. So if you imagine four virtual hyperthreads, whatever they call it, running on that, I could definitely see how that would outpace five threads on a Mac Pro, just on uh, raw clock speed. As long as you get enough cooling and all that, um, I can definitely see how that would outpace it. So yeah, if you want to do... Uh, high-performance Swift development. Apparently, the lesson is buy a Mac Mini. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Wow. I So the conclusion and tips, I'm definitely going to do the disable spotlight indexing. <laughs> I'm, 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 I have bookmarked that article to uh, to do it, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, mean, I, I always used to disable spotlight on my servers, for sure, because it's a pain. I mean, servers, okay, possibly, but, like, your own, like, development laptop? Like, the, I would be... Very, very I haven't done it in a while. I, I used to do it back in you know a few few OSs ago. Probably like um, some sort of leopardy kind of thing. Snow leopard, snow lion, whatever the hell it was. Um, what was the one after lion? Snow Mountain lion. lion. Mountain, Mountain lion. lion that. Yeah. Yeah. Hilly lion. Uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I used to do it back then too. But and and you know that it prevents you from doing things like you know the the command spacebar kind of search stuff that people like to do the quick open things. That's what that's used for, right? So. Or even searching for things inside files. Yeah, that would that would be a little bit too far for me to take because I think for sure I'm going to disable spotlight indexing because that seems harmless uh, for uh, you know the library caches and library developer. Um, I think I'm going to see what the uh, current compile tasks concurrent compile tasks thing does. Mm-hmm. Like I'll see what that actual value is for my machine. Like I'll I'll read it and then I'll write write it and see what happens just so i can undo it in case i mess it up yeah, it i think it really setting it to like slow. zero or something is the default like it'll just be you know number of cores times two i think for most most computers but yeah, yeah that's a good idea to check it first that's a good tip yeah yeah i might read that default see what it says and then be able to set it to this five and see if i get the 20 percent build time improvement because it's yeah. it's definitely something that would be helpful because uh who knows how long it'll be before Apple fixes this uh, particular issue uh, and yeah, how they'll fix the yeah. issue. But I knew that Swift clean compilation as well, in particular, is like laughably bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know Xcode 8.3 is still in beta, so I feel like it won't be fixed in that cycle. We may have to wait for like after WWDC, whatever that releases at this mm-hmm. point. But um, yeah, so as the article highlights, your mileage may vary. It depends on how much Swift you have and Objective-C and what the mix is and all of that. But uh, definitely something to play around with if you can get a up to, what is it, 23% increase is what they found, depending on the settings, then I think that's definitely worth investigating. <laughs> well, I guess I can stop saving up for that trash can Mac Pro now, now that I think it, now that I see it's <laughs> not, maybe not, a, a, you know, I won't get as much bang for the buck as I thought. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Should we move on to picks? Let's do the picks. Let's okay. do it. Yeah. So, Jaime, do you have a pick? Or two? Or three? Or five? <laughs> I do. Um, and it's uh, swiftdoc.org, which is auto-generated documentation for Swift. And you might be right. asking yourself, like, well, why don't I just use what uh, Apple has for, like, you know, the standard library, the developer cough, documentation? Cough. Yeah. And you can. But if you're like me, um, who's still, you know, relative newbie to Swift, you might find it a little bit hard to, to get around that, that document. So in my example, I was looking for 
some sort of Swifty method that would get the uh, first element that matches a particular need, right? I'm like, oh, well, I've got this, um, I've got this ID on, you know, my structs, and this is an array of structs. Like, I'm sure there must be like a Swifty way to do this. I, I could have written a for loop. Sure. I've done that plenty of times, but I was looking and I probably would have done that in Objective-C for sure. All right. But I spent some time looking for, uh, how do I do this in a Swifty, cool, cool kid sort of way? And that's what I came across, uh, across swiftdoc.org. So if you type in, you know, first, it will give you uh, into the little search box. I typed in first and I said, huh, okay. So there's a lot of properties for, you know, sets have a, a first property and random access collections have a first property. I was like, oh, sequence, cool. the sequence protocol has a first function. Like, oh, let me see what that does. And I followed the magic link and it showed me not only the documentation, but it showed me the, uh, sort of example of like, oh, that's, yeah, that does exactly what I want. It's going to either give me nil because it couldn't find anything, or it's going to find the first thing that matches the closure that I pass in for the where parameter. If I had tried to do that with Apple's uh, API reference, I would have gone way down on the, on there into the protocols section. I might have found sequence and that's probably 97% of the way down the page. Uh, and searching through the Swift standard library is a little hard on, on Apple's site. So Swift doc, Dot org is great because you know you've got just a search bar that's there and uh more importantly you have a little drop down that lets you choose well what version of swift are you looking for and that was extra helpful mm. too because as I, i'm sure many of us have found like you know google search results and stack overflow results can be a little twitchy at times because it's like oh i think this is a version of swift that we're not using i think this is like you know, 1.2 or 2.2. And like, we're using three. So <laughs> this example, is it going to help me? I, I find this, I, I bookmarked this because this is going to be a great tool to use. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. Yeah. Like I just, I just looked for something. And then as you said that I switched my language and got a page not found result because uh, the thing I was looking at was only, is only available in Swift 3.2, right? Oh, 3.2. So I see 3.1. No, 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 no. I, 3, not 2. I was oh, not 2. two. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was, so, so I was looking for, I switched to 2 point something, 2.2, which was an Xcode 7.3, right? And I was in the middle of that first thing you were talking about. And as soon as I did that, it went, because that sequence dot first isn't there, right? So, or whatever it was. Yeah. Anyway, this good. is cool. Yeah, yeah. We, we can't all be like Greg Hugh. I'm sure Greg has every single one of these <laughs> memorized protocols. by heart as, as, as he went through all 50 protocols and has now surely, surely gone through all the types. People have glow-in-the-dark stars on their ceiling. Greg has glow-in-the-dark protocols, right? I will not <laughs> confirm or deny that, yeah. <laughs> no, it's pretty cool. I really like, I've, if you didn't bring it up, I was going to, is the, um, yeah, the version drop-down on the left looks super handy. And yeah, I think like this is pulling documentation from the doc blocks in the stand in the source code itself, which is really good. I've, I mean, that's what I kind of dig through to find out little tips and tricks here and there. And you know, it's different from what they have in the sort of official Apple documentation, I think. And so uh, I'm glad that this is this is nicely formatted with the markdown and all that. So this is a uh, much easier to look through than uh, going through the source code directly. I don't know if you mentioned this too, but you can look at Swift 3.1, Xcode 8.3, Beta 2, but you can also look at the nightly builds from Swift slash Master, mm -hmm. which would be kind of cool. So what are they thinking of next? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. 
I'll give one more shout right. out. It's uh, Nate Cook of NS Hipster, Hipster Fame is the one behind this. No um, way. So yeah. Oh, mm. well done. Kudos. Thanks, Nate. So am I next or is Greg next? Uh, you look next in the list, Tim. Do you have a pick? I have a pick, yeah. So I was, um, it, it, funny thing happened last week. We were talking to Tammy and we're always joking with Tammy about tinfoil hats and stuff like that. And we were in context of, had just talked about the CIA um, thing. And um, so I just joked with Tammy about the tinfoil hat thing. And some, one of our listeners noticed that I, I titled the, um, the episode uh, Industrial Strength Tinfoil Hats. And some other podcast that he listens to called the Mac Power Users Podcast. Um, and there are like 340 episodes into their, their work. Um, and I apologize, Katie and I can't remember the other person's name, but uh, I listened to their show and it was an interesting show. They were talking all about the, um, how to protect yourself on your Macs, how to protect yourself when you're traveling, uh, how to protect yourself when using email and all the kind of things that, that the average Mac user doesn't really think about, um, two-factor authentication that kind of stuff and so my pick this week is twofactorauth.org that they listed on their show notes um which is kind of a cool website if you're curious about services that you use that may or may not provide two-factor authentication we've talked about two-factor authentication on the show before that's where you know you have a username and a password but then you also the service will send a text message or some sort of information back to you to confirm then you enter in a validation code and then your that's your second factor of authentication in a nutshell. So this uh, website lists, so if I'm looking for food, okay, I click on the food thing and it shows me uh, nobody in the food business is using two-factor authentication. Okay, let's try another example. Um, like investing, for instance, right? Okay, you would hope that a lot of people. So Acorns, which is a, an app that people or site that people use for managing their invest, investments, is not using two-factor authentication. But Charles Schwab and Betterment, E-Trade, Fidelity Investments, and... Um, uh, interactive brokers, as examples, are also Manulife is not using two-factor authentication, right? So they've got a handy little thing here where you can you can click on uh, to send a tweet to um, support this uh, effort towards two-factor two-factor authentication. So you can shame the Acorns people or American Funds people on Twitter into uh, providing this. So if you're curious about um, the services that you're using, health, entertainment, developer, you know, hosting, VPN, uh, retail, utilities, transport, task management, any all kinds of categories, you can click on them and see whether or not they, these sites support two-factor authentication. So, for instance, Apple does uh, support two-factor authentication with iCloud. Google does now with, uh, with their services. So if you're using Gmail or Drive or what have you, um, you can get that kind of thing going. So, And then you know that your... Uh, communications are secure, uh, or at least your, your sorry your authentication is secure, uh, going back and forth between these two companies. So, I did to try out some of the the big heavy hitters and the ones yeah. you would expect to have it have it. You know, you know, Snapchat, Google, Amazon. Right, right. What about Slack? Ooh, good question. Slack has two factor. I use that. Do they? Yeah, I think it's under. Oh, there's no chat. Ca- I guess you can search, but I, I definitely use two factor for Slack. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I use the um, like Authy, or you can use a like, Google Authenticator. I do it like that. But uh, it says they have an SMS option as well. So who knew? So how how does the because uh, the SMS one's kind of a pain in the butt. How does the Authy one work? Or, or uh, was the other one you mentioned? Google Authenticator. Usually they give you like a QR code. You scan it with the app, and then the app is like 
provides a six digit number that changes every 30 seconds you know that thing right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay it's, it's that style yeah because i do have authy for for some of my bit bit uh, coin stuff but um of course all of the cryptocurrencies are using two-factor authentication but um so so explain to me again so i go to slack and i go to log in and then it sends me a qr code no when you sign up initially they, um, yeah. oh, they okay. either give you a URL or a QR code. You scan it with the app, and that will sync up the sort of secret numbers. Uh, okay, okay. And then it'll say, "Great, now you know it will know the six the six digit number that you will know for the end of time." And then that's it. So right. on a fresh computer, you sign in, name, password. It'll say, "What is the secret six digit number?" And you have to go open right. the app, and then it'll tell you what the six digit number is and enter it in. And that's that thing that changes every 20 seconds or whatever, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the, the, the Power Users uh, podcast, they had all kinds of stuff. They were talking on things that we've talked about on this show before because we're all big fans of, of security and authentication, I think, right? I speak for you guys, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know Mark is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, it's, it's good to have. I mean, I, I definitely recommend that folks have something like one password or you know another really good password manager so you don't yeah. have to deal with uh re- you know reusing the same lame password everywhere um have it be you know as difficult as the website will allow you it and i've found that that's kind of depressing how some of them are not allowing me to do you know the max max number of words for a fra- a word phrase or passphrase sort of thing so sometimes i have to trim it down a little bit uh, but I, I use 2FA, uh, two-factor authentication, just about everywhere that I can. And, and this is really good because some of them I didn't know have it necessarily, right? I'm like, oh, I didn't know they had that option, right? I thought it was all all SMS for some of these or, you know, the software token would be really cool to add to some of these. Especially as we've seen, um, like, recently within the last 24 hours, there was a big old, um, some sort of Twitter hack and it wasn't twitter itself it was some sort of third party service that you can connect to your twitter account and it was posting like racist or nazi uh imagery and words sort of thing to people's accounts and so people had to go in and nice and deal with that and, and that's a hassle right so the two-factor authentication and a good password manager are going to go a long way towards uh, helping secure uh your, your digital life right it's, it's it's quickly becoming your real life too sadly say <laughs> but anyway, yeah, if you're interested in security and you want a, a good sort of synopsis of um, what to do, uh, I definitely recommend the last episode of um, Mac Power Users. Thank you. The Mac Power Users podcast, the episode was called something to do with tinfoil hats. There we go. That's all I got to say. <laughs> that's my pick. I could have picked like just about everything they talked about on that show. One password they talked about quite a bit too. So and we love one password. Made in Canada. Made in Toronto, I think. Anyway, how about you, Greg? You got any picks? Greg, do you have a pick? I do indeed have a pick. It is a new app from our friend of the show, Evan Deckheiser, and he has come out with a game. So the version 1.0, I will say, on the air was a little bit... There was some kind of a bug with ads showing up a little too often, so I hope Evan made his two cents off of me playing the game or whatever. I didn't actually click on the ad, sorry, but I'm sure you at least get the impression. Anyway, so he has just, uh, I think like as of this recording, just a few hours ago, I saw the update come through. And it's a chess... So first of all, he was writing some... He was asking some questions in the Slack, 
and he wrote a couple of blog posts about sort of how he was learning gameplay kit and how to do like AI for a game. So there are a couple of blog posts on his blog that you should check out just if you're interested in how gameplay kit does work and what kind of things it can do for the uh, AI based things. And and I should also add, you can use this for more than just games. There can be AI, and I think Tammy really loves the random number generator that they have in Gameplay Kit, for example. So anyway, he's written a couple of things on his blog about that. But the game itself is called Promo. Oh, I should have looked it up. I think it's called Promotion. It's called Promotion. It is called chess Promotion. Game. So it's like a chess game, but it's a little bit interesting where you have a king, as usual, and a row of pawns, and that's it. And so the king can move around as usual, but then for the pawns, every two moves, so, you know, you move the same pawn twice, it gets promoted to a knight. And then you can move like a knight does, but then after you move, you move twice as a knight, it changes to a bishop, and then onto a rook, and then a queen, and then you move with the queen twice, and it turns back into a knight and cycles through again. So it's an interesting twist on chess, because... You know, you make two moves and the piece is different. You're like, oh, I got to think about it this other way now. But if you arrange the pieces in quite in the right way, and then you move one, it gets promoted, then you can kind of come up with some really interesting strategies. So, yeah, interesting game. And it does not have the bug with ads, although there are still ads in there, I think. And uh, it's free, so you should check it out and give it a try. And I've been playing the single-player mode because I wanted to see how the AI would work because that was kind of the uh, the technical underpinnings that I was interested in to see how uh, how that works. So you should check I it out. I see he's got an iMessage thing here. Does that mean you play over iMessage? Or <laughs> I think player? so because there's a one-player mode and a two-player mode. So I think the two-player, you could just pass the phone. I haven't tried it, but I assume you can just pass the phone back and forth. But the iMessage means, yeah, you can play over iMessage Text. as well. That's cool. Yeah, so pretty cool thing. You should check it out. Um, even if you're not a chess fan, this definitely moves faster, in my experience at least, moves faster than a game of chess, although I'm not a chess expert by any means. But it's an Ooh. interesting twist to uh, to chess, so you should check it out. Looks cool. So let's see, there's... So instead of a, what, an 8x8 eight eight board, it's a 7x7 seven seven board, is what I'm looking at the screenshot here. Uh, it mentions the board is, is smaller, and the the whole idea of the pieces changing after two moves interests me because before you said that, Greg, I said, okay, well with a, a knight, I can make my way across the board in three moves, which is, is very, well, it's impossible to do in traditional chess, but after that second move, I'm going to switch to something else. So that's, that's definitely a, a different layer of strategy here. Very interesting. And if yeah. you, the other thing is if you capture all of the other players pawns, then the pawns respawn, so they get another seven or six or however many it is. So oh, they, really? Yeah, so it's like you can't just chase the king around because that's not so interesting, but you get rid of all their pawns. So there's also a little bit of extra strategy that I found it afterwards. was like, oh, I got to keep one pawn alive and like trapped somewhere, you know? And then that way I can just, um, then I can just chase the king down. So interesting, interesting idea. I've been playing it a little bit, uh, especially today after, the, uh, after this release. Oh, and you put his, uh, his link here for the blog post. Yeah, it's an interesting read. If not, if you're like, I hate chess, I don't really care, but uh, the blog post is still an interesting read, I think. Well, you know, Mark's been promoting uh, AI and machine le- machine learning, so... Mm-hmm, that's true. Yeah, so I'm sure Mark will have a look at this. All right, well, I guess that's it, right? I think so. We've mm-hmm. reached the end of the three-hour marathon that is more than just code podcast, he said sarcastically. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. 
And Greg, if people want to find you on the interwebs, they should they should also go on Twitter. I am at Greg Heo, or yes, find me in person at a conference and say hello. Mm-hmm. Take a selfie. Uh, I do enjoy the selfies. I won't uh, not. I'll admit it. <laughs> as I said at the top of the show, I'm Tim Mitra, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I can be found on Twitter at as T I M M I T R A, and that's the best way to get hold of me. So until next week, we'll say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items we talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website. And if you can, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press that recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help in spreading the word. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Tammy was saying, "I got to give Carol an avatar. Doesn't she doesn't look like a, a real person for some reason? It's like <laughs> being a Twitter egg, you know. That's no good for Carol. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did Twitter do that thing where you can block or mute people who don't have an avatar or who are still eggs? Yeah, yeah. They were talking about that, that right? Mm-hmm. You can do that now, right? Okay. Yep. yep. Well, I don't know if you can do it through the app, go. but certainly you can do it through the website. Hmm. That's cool. That's cool. Well, the app oh, is just web- one big oh. website, so I'm sure it's in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Now, now. Now, if you set that on the website, would that mute it? Like, if I use tweet, if I do use the app, or if I use Tweetbot, will that mute it everywhere? Because it's like a website setting. That's a good question. I don't know if if the muting, like how the muting works. Does it actually yeah. trim it out of API responses, or is it tagging API responses? Yeah, that's what I mean. I'm I'm curious to okay. Yeah. I should try it out. Mm-hmm. Greg, does that mean are, are you also a supporter of uh, what is it, Twitterific? Six point whatever whatever point oh the Kickstarter version. Uh no, I use I I guess when I'm at my desk, um I do have Tweetbot for Mac installed, but I don't use it that often. I usually just have the website open for notifications, but I do all my Twittering on my phone on Tweetbot. So I did not hmm. back the Kickstarter. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I don't really I use desktop uh Twitter too much. Yeah, I wasn't always a big Twitterific fan anyway. So that was part of it too. Although some people are like, you know, you should support software and support third-party clients. So I was going to do it for that, but they they did very very well without me. So I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure they're not missing my uh, my dollars there. <laughs> so I, I use uh, TweetDeck. Not that anybody asked. TweetDeck. Okay, I remember. I used to use. I really well, like the columns that you set up, like for different yeah, searches yeah. and things. Yeah, that was really cool. So I have like you know I have like cause, but I only use it for my main account. But I I have the Ask MTJC feed in in one of the screens there. So hmm, okay. Is there a TweetDeck yeah. app? I used to use the app back in the day. Do they still have that? Yeah, no, I think they, 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 that went away because when Twitter bought TweetDeck, right? Didn't they? Uh, 
It was a separate product before? Yeah, you're right. That's, what, that's how I found out about the app, right? Okay. Or okay. about the service. And then I used the app for a while because a friend of mine rec- had recommended it and then switched over to this. So. Yeah, I really liked the app back in the day. And then yeah. I remember I, it's like a giant web app now. Like the, It looks like the app used to look, but it's in the browser now, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, it's good banter. It's good There's banter. no so. banter like Twitter banter. <laughs> but next time you cross the border, they're going to see that, right? So yeah, I yeah. know. So that's why that's why I'm very careful. But I have to be careful. I have to keep my nose clean till RWDevCon is over. That's true. And that's then, your next and, uh, travel here, isn't it? Yeah, and then maybe and then maybe a WWDC and then and 360 iDev as well. So mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So I told you, Tim. Like you might as well just hand write out or maybe print out or maybe one password has a way to dump all of your social media passwords and just like put it on a physical document that you can hand over to the border patrol agent or or tsa or customs and just like just get it over with man like don't let them take your device but look here you go this is everything you need right here i was wondering if i if i could like before i cross the border like delete dropbox and delete one password and then if they ask me for the passwords, I'll be like, I have no idea what any of the passwords are. And there's no way to get out. You know what I mean? I'm sure it's legal. Is that like frowned upon? Will they be like, well, you're going to have to get out your computer. And t- I don't know. So, But that was a thought that I had in my mind to kind of prevent it. Because yeah, it's funny. One of my picks is is, uh, is to talk a bit about the um, here, Mac Power Users podcast. And they were talking about uh, an article that they'd read somewhere. Um, I think maybe iMore about what do you do when you cross the border, right? And... I know for a fact that if you erase your phone, if you have a good backup of your phone that you can access and you erase your phone and you go across the border with, like, an empty phone, on the other side, when you get inside the, the States, you can rest- – and I hope the CIA is not listening to this podcast – but then you can restore your, your content onto your phone. So you can you can technically erase your phone and just put, like, a your junky uh, – like, I don't use my Gmail address for anything, so I could put my Gmail account on there and go, well, that's all I've got in my mailbox, you know, a bunch of spam for you to look at, right? Um, and then restore your phone when you cross the border, right? So yeah, I've heard that somebody did that and they got a little angry. Like they had a clean phone. I think they just wiped the phone and then just set it up, whatever, just to get to the home screen. And then they got yeah, a little angry yeah. and saying, you know, oh, you're trying to hide something, and like that actually set off more alarms or whatever. That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, I, to be honest, I, I did, I did actually have second thoughts when I was coming across the border with uh, back in uh, February. Uh, with what I was going to bring with me, I ended up bringing Carol's computer because of because of the whole scare thing. I mean, um, I don't use Carol's computer for anything but recording this podcast, and you know Xavier uses it for some of his 3D stuff. But and Carol occasionally goes on there. But um, and I have my mail account set up on there, but I didn't want to take my my work computer with me because I have client files on there, right? And yeah. you know, I you know I have a, a responsibility to protect my client's privacy too, right? So what do you do? What do you do? Just Take not take nothing with you or what you know, and the same thing for you guys leaving too, right? Yeah, same thing applies to Americans coming back into the United States, right? Yeah, but we're yeah. it's generally viewed with less suspicion. Um, mm-hmm. Now that can vary all over the place, of course, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know that there's a real strong advice, and we're certainly not giving any legal advice because we're not lawyers. Um, <laughs> although I don't, I don't think you know they're they're not going to like take your kidneys, but. You might end up realizing <laughs> that it's a balmy 74 degrees Fahrenheit or 23 degrees centigrade in Guantanamo Bay right now. So hmm. keep that in mind. <laughs> nice. 
Good segue. Well, I'm happy to report I I made it through last time a few weeks ago. I made it back. No questions, no nothing. So uh, knock on wood. Well, it's, continue. it's funny. I, I have an excess pass as, as well. I'm a trusted yeah. traveler. That's what yeah. that means, right? And um, so I can do the TSA pre-check as you can too, Greg. Right? And um, but when I flew to to um, to the states last time because i had checked a bag they wanted to talk to me about that so i've never gone through nexus and had to even speak to a person but they made me you know, they said do you have a check bag i said yes and so i had to go talk to the guy and say you know yeah do you have a check and he looked at my boarding pass i guess they want to scan it to make sure the barcode matches or something they got to match whatever. up the bag to the person yeah to let it on yeah yeah so and and it's funny thing is so i took my i took the, the here's the irony is i took my podcasting mic with me because we were going to record while we were down in the states and um i have the yeti right well what does the yeti shaped like you know it's it's a cylindrical metal thing about you know three inches in diameter and about you know seven eight inches long and it's tubular yeah with very dense you know magnetic condensers in there or sorry just yeah a yeah it's not so, scannable yeah. so so it's funny I, and i realized that they must because my bag got inspected on the way down and it also got inspected by the canadian border uh, guys on the way back up right yeah they have a third party company that basically checks your bags like, there was like a little nice little you know they didn't leave a, a, a little mint on the pillow but they left a card in the in the thing to tell you you've been you've been your bag's been opened right but and they messed with my they messed with my gain setting on the back of my mic. So for like three weeks there, I was having really pro- <laughs> having problems recording the podcast. That could have just been the microphone got bumped around in the bag, right? Yeah, it was it was wrapped in a bag. So I mean, it's yeah. like I had a, I wrapped it in an Apple bag. But you know, yeah, l- lessons learned. Don't don't. Uh, they do tell you to take not to take per- not to check personal electronics inside your bag, and maybe that's why they just because they have to check everything like that, right? But I thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah, they uh, I've like I never check luggage, but when I moved here, I did because i had to live out of a suitcase for a month so i checked a larger right, bag right. and yeah, same thing i yeah. had my microphone in there and um it was like relatively everything was tightly packed but they packed it all back very nicely and yes left a little note saying hello the canadian tsa was here and we looked through your things and that was it so but- you, you remember how i remember how i brought the the i bought the book the mm-hmm. apple made, yeah. in, made in california i heard the sad story yeah. yeah yeah they they ripped it open yeah. You know, they didn't wreck the book, thankfully, because it's it's actually double wrapped by Apple. But they they tore back the packaging, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's a dense book. Man. It's a high quality paper. <laughs> I have a little <laughs> bit of real time follow up here. So the Ooh, okay. etymology of the word Esquire actually comes from the word for shield. So it's like a shield Ooh. bearer because you were like an assistant oh. to the knight. So I apologize. It is not. It's a it's a false friend for having to do with horses. It has to do with shields. Squire, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what Squire is, right? The second, uh, is that what we call the second? He would hand hand the the swords and the shields and polish the armor and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah, I think so. Yeah, it does say the first definition is a man or a boy who is a member of the gentry, ranking directly below a knight. So I believe that was the idea, though. You were like the assistant to the knight, but the word itself, shield, not horses. My first exposure to Esquire as a term was way back in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the movie. <laughs> yeah. Because you remember the guy who was not Keanu Reeves, that was Ted Theodore Logan. The other guy was Bill S. Preston Esquire, oh, really? as he called himself. Yeah. I didn't know what it meant back then. I was like, what, what the heck is that? That's weird. But Sure sounds fancy, whatever it is, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you're bringing some tea for our uh, our buds over there in England? I am. I've got it ready. I've, I was also going to note on the Swift... No, not Swift Doc. The um, 
twofactoroth.org at the bottom, the little colophon that says um, made with, you know, made powered by tea or something like that, which I liked. Oh, really? Uh, but yes, I do have the uh, a little box of uh, Yorkshire gold to bring to RWDevCon with me. Where'd you get that from? I bought it, it was almost, well, I, bought, I buy it on Amazon because I drink the tea and, oh, huh. you know, they're like, do you want a box of 80, a box of 160 or a box of 200? And I was like, oh, a box of 200. That sounds interesting. But I didn't mm. read it carefully enough. And they actually send you five boxes of 40, which is still 200, right? And the price was still fine, but it like it even comes in like a cardboard tray. Like if I had my own convenience store, this is what I would buy and I would put on the shelf to sell to people because it's like a package in a little tray of five boxes. So that's what I ended up buying. So I have five boxes of 40. Wholesale, yeah. Pretty much. Well, it was only five. It's not like I bought like a thousand or anything like that. Right. But right. Um, I was like, oh, well, I'll take a box to work and it's nice to transport instead of a, like an actual box of 200. But I still have a bunch. So I was like, oh, I'll bring one of these to the to the conference. Mm-hmm. Last year, it was uh, Darren who there's some British store somewhere on the East Coast nearby, like in Virginia. And he goes there to buy hard to find British export products in the United States. And he said they had it there, but he said it was like, I don't know, he paid like $9, something crazy, like $9 for a little box of tea. And so, um, yeah, this year I was like, no, I buy it on Amazon and I've already got a little box, so I will bring it with me. Interesting stuff. Yep. Tea. More than just code. Mm-hmm. Way more. <laughs> <laughs>